0: because Scandinavians actually have a very neutral English accent. Really? Yeah. Huh. So their English is understood universally. Right. Versus someone from America or
1: Apparently we have What's accents. That? I <laughs> you know appar- apparently we have accents. I didn't I did not know that. Um,
2: everyone has accents. I know. I think so. Everyone has accents. Yeah.
1: Everybody has an accent no matter where you're from. Thank you for joining the IPG Media Lab up here on Floor 9. I am your host, Scott Elchison, and this week I am joined by our very own Richard Yao, head of publishing here at the IPG Media Lab. Hello, everyone as well as Lin Liu, who is the IPG Media Labs ambassador from China. So, Lin, welcome to Floor 9.
0: Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um,
1: yeah, I'm glad to have you here. This, this is exciting. It's our, uh, our, our second ever in, ambassador on the uh, on the podcast. We had the uh, LATAM folks uh, with us for CES, so um, I'm pretty excited to have you guys here. Um, so this week, we're going to be talking about the 2019 Outlook, However, through the lens of China and the China POV that Lin uh, you wrote uh, for for our listeners out there, so I want to start with this, um, knowing that we have both of our experts on the China market here today. You know, if you look at the China market compared to the U.S. market, like what are like like the three main differences that our U.S. listeners and brand should be should either know about or be thinking
0: about? Um, of course, the players are completely different. Right. I think. Uh, China now has a um, completely different ecosystem Mm -hmm. uh, with its own players. Uh, I think everyone has probably heard about BAT, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, and uh, Tencent. Uh, I would say there are two uh, very interesting players on the scene right now. One is Xiaomi, who used to be a hardware player, but nowadays they are more of an IoT uh, player And then uh, ByteDance, Mm -hmm. which uh, actually I would say focus probably uh, on entertainment, short video and uh, uh, news on demand. Um, I would say um, ByteDance excels in um, algorithm. Okay, so they really know how to push the content that their users want exactly to them, and they have had a lot of very, very strong momentum um but I think beyond that there I think there are a couple of uh things I always call out for people who are uh not as intimately familiar with China, I would say uh, the first difference is uh, Chinese players tend to be more horizontal. Okay. uh, In the sense that they actually have different companies serving different needs of a consumer. And each company is almost an ecosystem all in itself. Uh, So, you know, Ali would actually have a a division that sells you movie tickets and has another division that sells you uh, delivery And, uh, you know, it goes on and on. So,
1: like, they're more like the Amazon kind of plane. Like, they kind of spread across every single vertical rather than just, like, focus on just, like, one consumer product like Apple. Yeah, a
0: little bit like like that. But Mm -hmm. I think even... Deeper and okay. more, uh, I think deeper and more entrenched than Amazon. Uh,
2: Do you think that's a result of the lack of regulation when it comes to technology companies, so they can enter like those new domain easier than they would have in the other more mature markets in the West, or is it just how Chinese companies like to achieve scale first and then expand? Vertically? I
0: think it's more of a, a business ambition. It's uh, the the drive to uh, achieve scale very very fast. I actually don't think uh, it's uh, regulation as as much a factor. Um, I also think it's because. I think Chinese companies are kind of less aware of its own DNA. I think in the West, the, uh, there is this established belief that one company has its own DNA. Therefore, you can excel only in certain areas. Mm-hmm. So when you spread yourself too thin, it becomes very inefficient. That train of thought doesn't quite exist in China yet. But I think we are seeing that understanding kind of emerging. I think Chinese companies pretty much emerged over the last 20 years. So everything is new and they're, they're just daring and brave, um, and very, very entrepreneurial. And that's how they kind of quickly expanded. Uh, into very very different uh, disciplines, um, and then related to that, actually, interestingly, is uh, a stronger sense of self regulation, which is why you are uh, we're not seeing the kind of backlash against uh, Alibaba or Tencent that uh, you guys see in the West against mm-hmm. Facebook or Google, uh, because every in pretty much in every field there's competition, so when they misbehave.
1: They kinda of get called out for it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, so uh actually in terms of privacy protection, I would say uh Tencent and Alibaba are doing better job versus okay. their uh peers in China and perhaps even their counterpart in the West.
1: Interesting. Richard, what about your like what are your yeah. thoughts? Like what like what do you, what do you think about the differences between the markets?
2: Well, obviously the Chinese market has a whole different ecosystem that's kinda sectioned off from the rest of the world's ecosystem in terms of technology and media. Mm -hmm. And that has really allowed the local player to flourish and kind of develop the product and services really tailored to local customers' needs. Actually, I have a question for you, Ling. Where do you see Huawei stand as far as the Chinese tech ecosystem go? Uh, Are they a major player now, or are they still just firmly on the hower side?
0: I think they are still very much a hardware player. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's part of their DNA. Um, Their focus is on hardware, and they're actually producing excellent hardware. Uh, I think they are optimizing their operating system. Mm -hmm. But so far, we're not actually seeing, uh, like comprehensive service.
2: Mm, they don't like have this, an ecosystem. They don't play. have an ecosystem yet.
0: Oh. Uh, Huawei is not becoming an Apple yet. You know, Huawei right. is know, not probably not offering music and content right. and, and all the solution to, right. to, to uh, people yet. I think Huawei is making very interesting uh, play in the area of uh, Internet of Things, IoT. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, first and foremost, when we think of Huawei, we think of a, a hardware company.
2: Right, totally. I mentioned Huawei because they're one of the only Chinese local companies that actually can manage to break out the Chinese market and actually see some success of their product in some international markets, not necessarily in the US because, you know, exactly, the complicated yeah. regulation and the product ban, but in markets like India and even some Southeast Europe, Asia, yeah,
0: yeah, in Europe, yes, yes. They are
2: actually seeing a lot of growth competing against like Apple and Samsung, Samsung yeah. for a lot of the market share.
0: Yeah, I, but I also would say um, some other Chinese companies are actually uh, expanding overseas, like ByteDance is actually a good example. Right, TikTok,
1: TikTok, TikTok, TikTok yep.
0: yes, but I think the problem with TikTok is um, it's, it's very hard to sustain uh, the, the level of engagement that uh, TikTok sees in China. Um, I think uh, in China again we have a very unique content ecosystem, which helps players like TikTok to thrive. And and I think it's more of a challenge for them overseas. Mm.
1: How I guess how so? Like, is it just because it's more integrated in the like Chinese consumer day to day on how they consume content? Is that what makes it? Easier for them to like excel in the China market, or it's like what is that actual kind of like difference?
0: I have to be a little bit controversial here. Okay, um, I think it it rests both in uh, how Chinese young people express themselves and the content ecosystem. Um, we, I mean, TikTok actually provides a lot of templates,
2: mm-hmm. uh,
0: which make self expression kind of easy. And uh, it also sets very clear boundaries in terms of, you know, how you express yourself or what you can say versus what you cannot say. Um, so uh, you don't have to stand out, but you can stand off if
1: okay. that makes any sense. Okay.
0: Um, which makes self-expression a lot easier, a lot more user-friendly. Um, second thing is, I actually think uh, we uh, still struggle in China with quality content. Okay. Um, so TikTok short video has become almost a risk-free way for consumers to test out things that entertain them. Um, when you are just looking at 15-second videos, right. you, even if it's not entertaining, you're losing only 15 seconds.
1: Right, it's a very uh, low barrier. It's a very, very, low, very low barrier. barrier. For like, for like the creator and also, also the consumer to kind of figure out what they like and what they don't like.
0: Yes, yes. Interesting. Uh, I think then uh, at the same time, bike dance can also quickly uh, figure out what you like. Um, so that that sense of scale, you know, that and as well as uh, one-on-one kind of service, mm-hmm. uh, can quickly make their content very addictive to a lot of Chinese consumers. Gotcha. I, I I my feeling is, and, and again, this is my hypothesis, um, in the U.S. market because there is such a uh, large quantity of. Quality entertainment that you're probably struggling with catching up with all the shows. Yes, 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 yes yeah. we are. <laughs> yes, yes. I, I feel like, you know, uh, 15 second video uh, based on everyday scenario, based on, you know, little jokes probably will be much, much harder to uh, stick.
1: That's actually a great segue into the very first theme of the Outlook, uh, which is the unbundling of search and social we're seeing how search is being unbundled from Google. Uh, Google isn't going anywhere anytime soon. However, like there is new platforms that are opening up new opportunities, uh, whether that's through voice or even visual search. Uh, and with social, we look at platforms like Facebook, the incumbents, um, where consumers are now looking for more niche platforms that are catering more towards their needs uh, that Facebook can no longer provide. Um, so how are you seeing this trend play out uh, in China?
0: I would say, actually... Same direction. Okay. Uh, even more intense. Um, because I think Google still gives you a high quality organic search. Yes the challenge with baidu is because its model its business model is completely dependent on advertising and historically it didn't do a really good job in terms of separating out paid search versus organic search and over the year it has, the, has had some scandal scandals in terms of the you know giving the uh, the users quality search results in critical areas like medical care Th- there's a real trust issue with Baidu.
2: Right. And uh, unlike Google's total monopoly over the search market here, there are always pretty decent search engine alternatives to Baidu in China. Is that correct? Like Sogo and uh, other search engines, even Bing. I,
0: yeah, I yeah even Bing. It. Yes, yes.
2: Microsoft Bing. Really? Microsoft Bing? Yeah. There. yeah.
0: Huh. Right. I I I think that's definitely a factor. Uh, I mean, but Baidu has historically been the strongest. But I think in addition to Baidu's problem, uh, there's also this. Uh, I think Baidu's overall strategy uh, re- in recent years to boost up the lost in uh, search revenue. They actually started uh, using content uh, to you know boost up their their revenue, and then you get the you know, really weird situation where their own such their own content get displayed on the top, which um, further undermines yep. the credibility of Baidu. So, so
1: yeah, I would say so that like that's like that is a definitely a precarious place as an engine, you know, once you start servicing like your own content and your own products. I mean like you lose all consumer trust. Like there's really no coming back from like that. that that's a very uh, hard uphill climb. Uh, but like you know, are you seeing anything? You know, you know, aside from the other search al- alternatives that are being used um, to, you know, like take take over search. Like I, I, I think you mentioned in the actual POV, you wrote that like content marketing is becoming more and more of a way for consumers to go out search and find products mm-hmm. um, outside the tr- like the traditional engine that is by do.
0: I think actually right now uh, we are seeing. Uh, Social as being a huge uh, influence okay. on people's decision to purchase, um, especially in you know impulse-driven categories like mm, color cosmetics, uh, skincare. All these things, um, people are no longer really searching for information. You know, people see you know there's this, this uh, really uh, successful platform that emerged out of China in the last couple of years, uh, Little Red Book. Uh, it's a user review site. And, uh, once you see a recommendation, people just tend to buy it,
2: mm-hmm.
0: uh, instead of like, you know, debating what's the ingredients inside, Um social KOLs have, uh, so much influence on Chinese consumer nowadays, um, that, uh, if you harness that energy well, uh, it can replace advertising for you, at least in the first couple of years. Wow. Um, There is this uh, very successful e-commerce launched, a brand called Home Facial Pro, which is somewhere between like uh, uh, a ordinary skincare um, and the the Canadian brand, Mm -hmm. uh, The Ordinary, right? Yep. I think it's called The Ordinary. And... uh, Uh, they launched themselves two years ago and now they're turning into a 1 billion RMB per year brand purely uh, dependent on the power of uh, influencer marketing. marketing. Wow. They basically released 60,000 articles in two years.
1: That's an unbelievable amount of content
2: production. Yeah, it's really interesting how social discovery has really taken off and kind of Unbundled that part of search the need for discovery into part of a lot of the social function in that way uh just to kind of pivot it a, a little bit a uh, part of the big unbundling search trend we talk about in the us edition of the outlook is about the the rise of voice search and visual search all those new innovations that are actually developing new search platform to challenge the Incumbent. And in the US, Google is actually a first mover on visual search, Mm -hmm. but it kind of falls behind on voice search, Mm. where Amazon's Alexa have conquered more market share. Do you see that kind of dynamic playing out in the Chinese market?
0: Um, We've seen consumers leveraging visual search. A lot of that is actually in the context of uh, um, e commerce. When they're searching for an uh, a, a item that they, they like, they just take a picture. So is it
2: on uh, Alibaba's platform or is it more? It's actually across
0: thing? all. I mean, you you see that in. I mean, basically now all search engines offer that. So Baidu actually has its own uh, visual search. Baidu has its own voice search. Um, but in terms of actually seeing consumer using it. Uh, we we actually see more in the in the space of e-commerce, um, and uh, I think search now. And it, it, the other thing to keep in mind is also uh, I think search uh, Chinese consumers are extremely mobile, and uh, all these features are actually part of the Android uh, operating system as well. So sometimes consumers actually just directly pull up their phone, and you know do the search from there. Uh, I think in terms of voice search, that's a very interesting topic. Um, The, you know, smart smart speakers in China, the sales kind of hit, I think, 20 uh, 20 million last year, which is a huge number. Um, However, um, we are not seeing sustained uh, usage of voice search because the results are not as great. Uh, Consumers and and so much of that is actually not... the voice voice search actually didn't come from the consumer you know in terms of the 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 genuine demand for uh, smart speakers uh, it came from uh subsidies from uh big platforms like alibaba or or xiaomi um they priced the smart speakers so low so you get it even just as a bluetooth speaker but a lot of consumers actually never uh got too deep into the Voice search uh you know as a function of the smart speaker,
2: yeah, it's interesting to see what exactly are the kind of use case the smart speaker users are actually adopting. Some may just stay at very surface level, like you say as a as a speaker to play music or ask the weather, like those very basic fundamental tests. if you go somewhere deeper, like the software doesn't really offer the best result, and that's where. I guess the adoption really lacks it, even if the hardware is already in place for that.
0: I think that's exactly the problem. Uh, the, the, The need actually doesn't seem to be very organic. Mm. Uh, a lot of the consumers buy it and then use it for a couple of days, almost as a toy, and then it kind of sits there. I see. Uh, and then the someone actually offered a pretty insightful observation, and I don't know how to what extent it's true. You know, uh, American consumers actually cook at home. Yep. So when they're cooking, they say to the speaker, hey, find me this, find, find me that. Chinese consumers actually eat outside a lot, mm-hmm. and Chinese kitchen is actually separate from the living room. So it's much, much harder for you to yell into that speaker. Right, No open
2: floor plan in Chinese home. <laughs> the way yeah. you cook has way too much smoke. Right. Yeah,
0: so it's, it's very interesting. What, what we're observing is uh, in China, people are saying, you know, like uh, a lot of the, the voice function are becoming very demographically focused, i.e. it become uh, a, um, a service for children you know, parents actually use smart speakers to read stories to children. Or it became, or potentially is becoming uh, something that older people could use because they have very poor eyesight. Therefore, voice would be a great alternative to them. Um, But as far as every day... Uh, search, you know, voice search and all that, we're actually not seeing a whole lot. I mean, I think what we are generally witnessing is the decline of importance in, in search. You know, we see this in when we are actually developing campaign, when we're analyzing the results all the time. The, influ- the, the, the impact is moving to social. Mm. And with that, we're actually seeing a huge amount of uh, content developed based on the advertiser's needs.
1: Right. And I want to jump straight into this, like this idea of content and content in China, because uh, you know, our, like the second theme that I think this fits well with is media haves and have-nots, and you know how we're kind of seeing a a I guess on the U.S. side of things, like a a a class system evolve where there are those that can afford the premium access to the content that is behind these paywalls. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you see this trend? also developing when it comes to content and access to content in the Chinese market? Like, how is that different? Because obviously, like, just in general, like, how content is accessed in China is much, much more regulated and different than what it is in the U.S. market today.
0: I think the general trend is definitely true. And I think in the future, you probably will see, you know, this uh, divide between haves and have-nots become stronger. However, right now, it's quite muddy. Um, there, There are a few things. One is, actually, we don't have a very strong established journalism tradition in China. So even when you are paying for content, a lot of times you are paying for self-media that you love.
1: Is that skewed towards like like the content that improves your, like, like your own education, like kind of like self-improvement?
0: Absolutely. There's a lot of uh, paid education products out there. But then there's also a sense of cynicism because even with those uh, more kind of, you know, basically knowledge-based products, there is a sense that uh, some of that is probably just chicken soup. Some of that is probably just you know, fast food for business. Mm-hmm. Um so there's always this sense of what's do these programs have lasting value? Um are they real knowledge uh uh
1: yeah, d- does it does it actually like improve the long term benefits of like an education or something like yeah, that.
2: Yeah. Right. Yeah. And also isn't there a difference between the kind of subscription based pay content services in the US than mm. the kind of pay content in China, which is more based on microtransactions, that's more of um, per view or per access basis because yeah. the prevalence of mobile payments kinda facilitate that kind of micropayment-based business model.
0: Exactly, exactly. So what we see, actually, if you, if you look at the number of memberships in China last year, say for IT, um, you, you might be shocked by the number of memberships, but the memberships are actually not counted on a person basis. They are counted on per subscription basis. And sometimes this sub- subscription only lasts a few weeks. Or a quarter. Um, mm-hmm. So what? Because what happens in China is you basically get access to the same shows, uh, but if you pay for it, you get it on the same day. Okay. If you don't pay for it, you get it a week later. So a lot of people just kind of go, "Oh yeah, I, I can I can wait for a week."
1: Right. But um, they, but they, they don't they don't have like, the same like kind of binge culture that, that, that has been like established in the U S where you can watch a whole season at once, or is it still kind of more like in the window strategy where like an episode drops and you can watch it or either wait a week.
0: It's, it's both. Okay. It's both. You want to watch it at the same time with everyone else, because you don't want to lose out on the conversation. We're very, very social people. Right. So if you miss this window of, uh, you know, talking about the show that's happening at the moment, um, you feel out, Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, a lot of people do catch up on one show in a go. Okay. Um, so, uh, you know, paying for the content a lot of times is, is driven by the hot show at the moment. Right. Um, although I, I, would actually, I actually think we are seeing an evolution of the business model because traditionally in the past, uh, Chinese content providers still see advertising as their main revenue. Uh, really? stream
1: yes so that even though even though it's paid for advertising it's still worked into that piece of content like like the traditional like you know 30 second or thirty or 60 second ads will be shown
0: actually nowadays you if you if you pay for it you get ad free service okay uh, but, but it's it's not a consumer issue as much as it is uh how uh, uh platforms uh consider how they make money nowadays actually you know players like ite after they witnessed the success of Netflix, they have more confidence in uh, making a profit just based on subscription okay. alone. so that 's what they are driving uh, more nowadays versus before. But I think in the past, everyone just believes that you just have to sell advertising right and you know, that 's why um, there is less emphasis on you know paid search, and there was also this mindset that Chinese consumers don 't really care about copyright. Therefore, there's no way to reinforce it, and I would say piracy is still a problem. Uh, however, younger generation actually are much more aware of, you know, copyright, and they respect that. Okay. So things are changing. So I think in the future you'll probably see more subscription-based model versus advertising-based model in terms of uh, uh, content I'm, consumption. Content consumption. Yeah.
2: I also, funny really interesting because I was back home last December and my mom actually have a paid subscription to IGE. And I was shocked to actually find that even with the paid subscription, there are still a pretty heavy amount of ads like before the show or even like in like the mirror ads. Hmm. So uh, f- uh, definitely to a point that the Chinese streaming services seem to be more leaning on advertising to subsidize the subscription cost in yeah. another way, and oh. also... Op- of them licensing content and developing their own original shows.
0: Yeah, I, and I think some of, the, some of the paid membership allows you to skip the ad. Ah, right.
2: So, that's that's mm, one of the okay, features that they advertise, right. Yeah. But they never just take, remove the ads for you. You still have to they don't, they don't. choose yeah. to skip it. Yeah, That's yeah. a really interesting way for them to expand the impression on the ads. The other thing I would say really interesting in terms of media I have, I have not is that there is also a data privacy angle in this. In the Western markets, that if you are paying for a subscription, usually your data is more secure. You're not being tracked by ads. So I just find it really interesting. It seems like in China, even if you're paying for a subscription, even if you're inside of the paywall, you still won't be able to escape the ad tracking.
0: I don't think you can escape. Um, I actually think in China... The trend almost work the other way around. I think uh, data protection as a consumer issue has much higher awareness in the West versus in China. Uh, I think in China, people automatically assume that their data is not protected, that data is being collected. And they are actually, um, most people are fine with it. Uh, especially for an affluent consumer who's younger, more tech savvy, who uses every feature on Alibaba. Um, The amount of data point that you can collect Mm -hmm. from one person is incredible. Like what I ordered for lunch, uh, where I take the taxi to, uh, where I fine dined with my friends, which hotel I went to. Alibaba knows everything about and,
1: it. And do you think that's kind of on like the consumer standpoint, like they are one aware of, but also like the like, Alibaba, for example, has been more transparent with here are all the ways that we're collecting and using data.
0: I don't even think um, Chinese consumers thought about their data being okay. collected being a problem.
1: Right. It's just, just like borderline. Like it's like it, they know it's being collected. It's part of like the culture and how this how the service works and like that, they they can understand the value that comes and it's like kind of like it's it's an afterthought like they're not concerned about it
0: they're not really concerned about it Um, if anything and actually I think if it's Alibaba or Tencent who's collecting your data you're in good hands Um, actually WeChat is notorious for uh, protecting the consumer's data ferociously Uh usually when your data sits with them it's not too bad Okay. Um it's so, so Chinese consumers are less aware of the need to actually protect your data. Um but uh, the flip side of that is actually in China a lot of the smaller players are very very unscrupulous.
2: Okay.
0: Um there is like 1.5 million people uh engaged in the trade of cybercrime. Um and usually it's these people who's stealing your data. And, uh, the government basically is making law, uh, trying to reinforce the point, trying to raise that, trying to make a privacy protection an issue for consumers. Right. Um, and what I'm, what I'm, I suspect is in the future, you will see data privacy becoming more and more of an issue to Chinese consumers. Mm-hmm. Uh, the awareness will grow slowly, right. but I think
1: yeah but it, yeah. it's it's a flip whereas it's like it like the regulation is coming down from like the government rather than kind of pulling up from like the consumers asking for it or like questioning about it um so that's kind of an interesting you know dynamic between the two markets
2: yeah it seems like the chinese consumer has kind of collectively resigned of the fact that their data is being collected and so far they don't really see that much negative consequences of that Yeah. and just the concept of like data privacy could be different between the <laughs> East and the West, in that way.
0: Absolutely, absolutely, and I think it's probably it's probably just one. Accident away from was, that
1: becoming say, yeah, it's an probably issue. Like one one data breach or something that was big on one of the platforms. To be like, okay, now it becomes an issue. Because I think that's what happened with yeah. the U.S. consumer, right? Like we were very unaware of it. It was like this intangible thing that was out there until the Facebook Cambridge Analytica scandal. Um, so that could be, you know, one of those things. If like Alibaba or Tencent had a breach like that, or was the data was mishandled for some reason, that could be the the kick that's needed to you know kind of bring that same sort of reaction we're seeing in the U.S. to the to the Chinese consumers
0: i think that's absolutely right um i think actually the government also actually has a stake in raising that uh, uh social agenda because the cost of governance is way too high um the thing that's un- really unique about china is the amount of data that gets collected in china uh, you know we talk about desensitizing data mm-hmm. before we hand it to third party you know for marketing purpose but uh, uh because There are so many data points collected about Linlu. Even when you remove my name, when you put those dots together. It's very easy to figure out. It's very easy to figure out (laughs) it's me. And that just makes uh, cybercrime so easy. Um, I think the government actually has a stake in uh, educating educating the uh, citizenry. Uh, It's very, very important to protect your own data. Uh, so the cost of governance actually becomes a little less for them. Uh, you know, Kai-Fu Lee, an uh, a, a AI expert and, and very renowned Chinese businessman, he once said China is the Saudi Arabia of data. Um, it's a very, very unique challenge because we're such a mobile, uh, savvy nation. Um, and I think that impacts uh, not just how consumers behave, but also how Chinese government to see data regulation. Uh, unlike in the West, Alibaba and Tencent actually don't really hand out, don't, don't really, they don't really allow you to access their data.
1: Data, okay.
0: And for the longest time, we were so frustrated. We were like, why can, you know, marketeers in the in the US can plug into Facebook and then come out with a beautiful profile of their users and we cannot. Mm. Um, and again, it's just because once you, you know, once you open the floodgates. Once you open the floodgates, there would be yeah. Who knows what is yeah, coming yeah, out. Yeah. Who <laughs> knows what will happen. So the, the actually I think the, the government actually said a few times they don't like this land grab by the right. companies here and there. But at the same time, they allow this division of, mm-hmm. you know, the, the walls to exist between companies. So it's easier to manage for
1: right. them. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I wanted to then shift right into uh, a conversation around uh, every brand is a lifestyle brand. Uh, this is the third trend in the 2019 outlook. Um, so similar to what we're seeing in the U S um, more and more brands in 2019 that are purpose-driven, they, they have a, a surround themselves with either um, some sort of uh, brand values that align with their consumer audience, or mm-hmm. they have Really honed in on a purpose that has, uh, n- not only driven their business, but also all, all their marketing, uh, to, you know, help, you know, align with consumer values and beliefs. Now, are you seeing brands, uh, in China kind of take up this, um, kind of same strategy to like better align themselves with, uh, either a purpose or their values of their target audience?
2: For example, in the U.S., we're actually seeing a lot direct to consumer brand using Mm -hmm. this kind of lifestyle branding to differentiate themselves from the legacy CPG brand and really just corner a segment of the market. For example, we have Casper Mm -hmm. who really developed a whole source of content around sleep so that when you're looking into the sleep space, whether you're in market for a new mattress or not, the Casper brand always come up as a lifestyle brand for the safe category. Mm, mm. Is, do you see the same kind of strategy in China?
0: We're seeing some of the smaller brands who are kind of very successful in that, ter- in that uh, territory. Uh, I think one brand uh, based in Shanghai that would call out is uh, uh, Beast, uh, which started out as a uh, flower shop. And they're still a flower shop. But at the same time...
2: Uh, uh, online from shop or...? Uh,
0: originally, they were online. Okay. When they first came out, they were online. And they actually do a very, very artistically inspired creation. Uh, and they sell it at a luxury level price. And then over time, they actually became, you know, this uh, urban, Chinese, very contemporary uh, lifestyle brand. Um so nowadays I actually think it's probably one of the few credible luxury brands that are emerging from China. Uh they actually do a lot of uh collaborations with luxury brands. Uh but they also curate a lot of beautiful things from around the world. Um and uh that brand really and and later on they actually opened uh offline shop okay. where you can buy uh, that's beautiful items you know,
1: that that seems exactly what like a lot of the direct consumer brands are doing in here in the states as well Is that they've they've expanded and grown as much as they could off or, or offline or no, excuse me, online and then they're like they're looking now kind of more towards like those traditional marketing channels that are offline uh to help grow like the larger you know consumer base pretty much like, you know, Casper, for example, are opening stores because they need a place for people to try out their mattress. People want to actually try them out. So, yeah. um, it's it kind of seems like that's kind of like mirroring, you know, across both, um, markets. And
2: right. And part of, uh, why this lifestyle branding works nowadays is just that there's so much content so much stuff out there consumer are overwhelmed by choice so yeah. if you can go in and develop your own content or either through curation or your, your own branded content to eliminate the need for consumer choice that it in itself is a great service that will build that consumer relationship and make consumer trust your brand yeah. which then again, in turn, allow that brand to expand into more areas.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Basically, uh, simplifying choices for consumers. And that's what Lifestyle is all about.
1: So our last and final section is automation interrupted. Uh, And this is really looking at how um, you know, across all different industry sectors, um, automation is coming in to replace uh, or help reduce the labor that we as humans need to do. So it's really starting in the home today with a different voice assistance um, and is working its way out into things like autonomous vehicles. We're seeing it in warehouse and factories. I mean, Amazon notably has had automated factories for, for years now. Um, and we're, we're just going to start to see this automation kind of creep across many different industry verticals. But with that, the task that the automation is, replacing uh, is also going to be replacing people themselves. Mm. So it kind of creates an interesting dynamic for brands as, as automation comes into play. Uh, we have to be careful how we actually go about marketing to these individuals that will continue to be our consumers after the automation has replaced them.
2: A lot of the role of this automation tech will heavily depend on government regulations. And this is where we might see the trends start to diverge between The West and And China, China,
0: yeah. Um, I would say actually one thing that I'm observing that's very very unique about China is uh, our labor force is very fluid. Um, Right now, we actually, thanks to the delivery industry, we actually have a shortage of labor at factories. Because oh, wow. a lot of the young guy who used to work at factories have decided to work in delivery business because that helps them to get a bit more money. Right. Um, so some of those human issues that you're talking about in the West, they are much lighter in China. I mean, we are seeing some of that. For example, you know, at toll stations, because those people who work at toll stations there they were actually government employees, so they actually don't have that fluidity or mobility in in profession. Once their their job is eliminated, um, there is a definitely a very very heavy human cost. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but relatively speaking, these people represent a smaller portion of the workforce versus. Here in the in the West, where someone choose a job at eighteen or twenty two, and they tend to stick with it for twenty years and or even thirty years and all that. Um, it's
1: interesting, and the you know kind of when we look at, I guess, like the different areas that automation kind of you know, can take place. I know, like famously, Alibaba announced their new Fly FlyZoo hotel. Is that something that we're kind of seeing like more? Tech companies or brands like really experiment with like are are they just like kind of really bringing it into small like, like like locations first and just testing out like a slew of products to see what works or what doesn't work and then kind of iterate from there. I
0: th- yeah, I think um, experiment is a great word. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're trying out. Yeah. Uh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. A lot of those so-called uh, unmanned shop or unmanned hotel actually has a lot of human staff. Um, there, there, there are certain areas. There are certain parts of the service that are automated, uh, but overall, I think I, we're still—I would say—it still stayed as the in the experimental stage. Mm-hmm. Um, Alibaba famously announced its first unmanned uh, convenience store in the summer of 2017 at uh, the Maker Fair, Ali, Alibaba Maker Fair, um, and uh, uh, it was never really brought to real life. Um, it was a PR yeah.
1: announcement. I think it's, it's
0: genuine. <laughs> I think it's genuine experiment. Right. Uh, but it remains an experiment. Uh, later on, there was this experiment uh, by Heidi Lao, which is a Chinese hot pot restaurant. We- like really, really no- well known for its attentive like 360 service. So when they announced that they're going to have an unmanned uh, restaurant, everyone was like, oh my God, what happened? Um, And then I I was searching for (laughs) video of people actually visiting the store. There are a lot of human staff. There's a lot of human beings, you know, like helping to facilitate the robots (laughs) to provide a satisfactory level of service. Um, The experience is very futuristic. I mean, you know, a lot of their... Uh, like waiting experience became uh more tech driven et etc et etc but they're still human beings so um I find it really
2: interesting to see this kind of cultural difference maybe because Given the example you just listed, um, it sounds like Chinese consumers are really starting to reap the benefits of a lot of the uh, automation technology. Therefore, they seem to have a sunnier attitude or optimism towards automation. They're more willing to embrace that. Do you think the consumer sentiment in China towards automation could turn in the future or is it just going to going down this kind of sunny path?
0: I think we'll be more optimistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 this attitude lies beyond just in our attitude uh, towards automation. It's our attitude to technology and development in general. Uh, if you look at China, we really only started uh, to grow exponentially since the early 90s. Um, what we experience in real life uh, I think there are a couple of things. one is uh minimally viable product being served to the market all the time, so you tolerate all the flaws and you know that's just part of the 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 process and uh then the secondly is a a, a fluidity in your career path uh Very few Chinese people probably would stick with one job for life. And it has its own problems. And that's why I think Chinese, uh, society recently kind of embraced this notion of, you know, craftsmen, because that's something actually we lack. We kind of just see a job as a job. And, right. you know, five years later, we move to something else. Um, so with that, I think we will always be more tolerant of mistakes, mm-hmm. of experiments along the way of, uh, you know, us having to kind of, Figuring out another way of making a living versus uh, consumers in the in the West.
2: Yeah, it sounds like the overall Chinese culture is more aligned with Silicon Valley's move fast, break things, like you kind know, a entrepreneurial I so. spirit.
0: I think so. Yeah, know. I mean, wh- I was asked that question quite a few times: Why Chinese consumers are so friendly to innovation? And my answer tends to be, it's because We know there's no perfection for us to hang on to. Mm -hmm. So we embrace improvement.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, Lynn, thank you so much for coming on Floor 9 and giving us an excellent perspective um, about the Chinese market. Richard, thank you for the debut. It was fantastic. Excited to have you here and excited to have you both back. And if you're looking to read more about uh, the themes and trends that we talked today, uh, about how the Outlook applies to the Chinese market, uh, Lin's POV is on uh, our Outlook. uh, Excuse me. It is on our Medium website. uh, So you can go to ipglab.com. From there, you can access the Medium website. You can follow us on our social channels at IPGLab for Twitter and Instagram. Uh, And if you like what you hear, share. Tell a friend. Give us a review. Whatever you can do, we greatly appreciate it. So thank you, and thank the both of you for uh, coming on Floor 9.
0: Thanks so much.
1: Talk soon, everybody.